Join me in standing as we rise to read this morning's sermon text, and as the deacons continue to collect this morning's offering, you can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 22, as our ongoing series through this wonderful book continues this morning. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, actually at the end of chapter 21, verse 37, all the way through verse 29 of Chapter 22 is our text, but the bulk of our time uh, we'll spend in verse 1 through 21 of chapter 22. So let me just read that portion for us, those 21 verses, and then I'll pray for God's blessing on our study and, and we'll begin together. So listen once again as God is now speaking to you through his perfect and powerful word. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that Paul was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, and brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as are all of you this day. I persecuted the way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul... Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly. They will not accept your testimony about me. I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Now, Father, we know that your word is full of blessing unto us, and we ask that it would bless us this day in our hearing of it. 
that we like Paul of old might be able to see the righteous one, the risen and exalted Jesus Christ, and hear his voice from his mouth as even by his word and spirit he speaks to us now. And we pray for these things in his precious name. Amen. You may be seated. I know a number of you grew up in households and even churches where you would typically read and hear the Bible in the King James translation. And you may know that something like 80% of that translation into English depends on the work of a 16th century scholar named William Tyndale. And Tyndale's last recorded words just before he died were words of a prayer. They were words that simply cried out, Lord, open his eyes. And the story behind that goes something like this. It was in 1535 that he was on the run from authorities who were eager to execute him because he was translating the Bible into English, which was forbidden at that time. And in, in and around early 1535, he came across a man named Henry Phillips. And Henry Phillips ingratiated himself into Tyndale's circle, but Phillips didn't intend to be a friend. He meant to be a foe who would ultimately betray Tyndale into the hands of the authorities that wanted to kill him. And sure enough, as time passed, Tyndale was betrayed into the hands of these authorities by someone he considered a close friend, and for something like 500 days, he, he sat in this cold, this dark, and this damp prison continuing his work of translating the word. It's why you could come across a letter that Tyndale wrote to the prison warden at the time, and he said something like, I beseech and beg upon your clemency, sir. And he began to talk about how he was suffering from constant sickness, that he had this constant bouts with physical ailments and affliction, that his threadbare clothing was not in any way sufficient uh, to deal with the cold weather there in the prison. But he said, I, I beg and beseech your clemency, sir, uh, that you might bring me my Hebrew grammar, that you might bring me my Hebrew dictionary, that I might continue my Hebrew study, because his life's ambition and even mission was to get the word out. Well, by October of 1536, actually October 6th of 1536, you'd find Tyndale lashed to the stake. There in front of him was a pile of wood, on top of which the English soldiers had poured a lot of gunpowder. It was going to not be so much an execution by asphyxiation with the fire, as much as it was going to be execution by explosion. And before that happened, he cried out those last recorded words, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And if you know anything about the English Reformation, it was quite quick after that that the Lord opened the King of England's eyes. And it was a heartbeat that really much was reflecting the Apostle Paul in our text today because we're going to find a man here in the text and he's going to essentially give this prayer and plea before the Lord. Uh, these opponents, these people that want to kill him, standing there in front of him. Lord, open their eyes, because his ambition, his mission, his commission from Jesus Christ was to get the word out to the world, and we want to learn something about what his ambition would mean for us today, and no doubt even God's grace 
in conversion. So if you haven't been with us in recent weeks, all you need to know to catch you up on this part of Acts is that Paul, for the last few weeks in his life, perhaps even months, he's been in haste to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost that he might deliver to the poor Jerusalem saints an offering, uh, monetary funds that he's collected from Gentile converts throughout the areas where he has recently been. And uh, no doubt what he even told the Romans in his letter to them as he was on his way to get to Jerusalem, he said, well, the Gentile believers, they've come to share in the spiritual blessings of Israel. So it's right that the Gentile believers share in the, the physical, material, financial blessings of the nation of Israel as well, as Paul's seemingly wanting to show how Jesus Christ has broken down this dividing wall, this barrier that stood between Jews and Gentiles, that they are one body, they are one new man in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we saw last week that he came to Jerusalem. He showed up and began talking with the leader there at Jerusalem, the Apostle James, and his fellow leaders, and Paul was recounting, as missionaries often do, recounting everything that had happened in his recent ministry of preaching the gospel, planting churches. There was great glory given to God, and then we heard how these religious leaders there in Jerusalem, the early church leaders, they they came up to Paul, and they said, Hey, Paul, you know, brother, we've been hearing these reports about you. And these reports say that you are teaching Christians not to observe the Torah. So we have a proposal to make, Paul. Uh, We want you to undergo this vow of purity for a short amount of time. And then you'll show all the Jewish Christians that, well, actually, you do keep the Torah. And we know that Paul's missiology, his missionary strategy was to the Jews, become a Jew in order that I might win Jews. To those under the law. I become like those under the law that I might win those under the law. So he undergoes this vow of purity, and he was found in the temple a week later by some Asian Jews that had persecuted him. And if you flip back to chapter 21, what you'll see in that text, verse 28, what they did when they saw Paul in the temple there in Jerusalem. They cried out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this place. They dragged him outside the temple, kids we saw last week, and they proceeded. And you need to think, if you know the geography of the temple well and even the way it was constructed for minutes, this crowd of Jews began to beat Paul, intending to beat him to death. The Roman soldiers, they find out about it. They're located in the Tower of Antonia in the corner of a part of the temple. Minutes later, they race in and they save Paul. They put him in chains, and then that's where we pick up the story today as Paul is now in chains there in Jerusalem, just as Agabus the prophet had said would happen, just as the Holy Spirit had testified to Paul's heart that affliction and imprisonment awaited in Jerusalem. And so it's actually a quite significant shift in the narrative of Acts because up until this point, students, you might uh, remember and recall how, how Paul has always been on the offensive for Jesus Christ, planting churches, preaching the gospel. And from this point forward through the end of the book, he is always on the defensive as the church planter and the gospel preacher. Now he's just a prisoner for Jesus Christ. And we want to learn something about his defense and what it would mean uh, for us today. Uh, Kids, as I I read those 21 verses in chapter 22, you you probably would know that it's just Paul's autobiography of what happened to him when Christ called him and Christ saved him. Autobiography, just retelling the story of your life. 
And those of you that are familiar enough with the New Testament, you might know that the only historical event in all of the New Testament that gets more attention than Paul's conversion is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Paul's conversion gets more attention even than the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the story of the New Testament. So as we come to the second time in Acts, and this won't be the last time in Acts, that we hear Paul talk about his conversion, we hear Luke record the details of his conversion. Clearly, the repetition is meant to impress upon us something quite vital and important. So most of what we're going to look at today in Paul's early defense there in Jerusalem, it's stuff we've heard before. If you were with us all the way back in July, you heard it in Acts chapter 9. But there is something in there that actually is different. It's a wrinkle that Paul tells us that Luke didn't record in Acts chapter 9. And all I want to help you see from this text before us is a very simple and gospel theme. And it's a theme that we're going to see by the end. Has the Jews ready to kill Paul all over again? And it's simply the theme that Jesus Christ is the Savior for all people. And it's that last point that brings all the climactic conclusion that we'll get to, that he's the Savior for all people. So I want you to see two things from his defense, and then we'll notice three things at the end. First, I want you to see in his defense that Jesus saves persecutors. Jesus saves persecutors. You can glance again to the end there of chapter 21, verse 37. Paul is walking back to the barracks in bonds under Roman power, and he says to the tribune, may I say something to you? He's clearly speaking in Greek. The Roman tribune is amazed that Paul can speak Greek. You glance at the next verse. He's basically saying, the Roman tribune, I thought you were this Egyptian terrorist, this cult-like leader that had gathered 4,000 assassins to his name. You speak Greek. Well, Paul says, well, of course I speak Greek. Notice verse 39, I am a Jew. From Tarsus, in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city, and I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Some of you travel quite a bit, and I imagine that you understand how when you're introducing yourself to people, place matters. I've been a Texan my whole life, and I've traveled by God's grace quite a bit my whole life. And You know, when you go to other states and you say, well, I'm from Texas, they automatically make assumptions about you as a Texan which I suppose some assumptions are true, that we talk about Texas as its own republic and it's the best state in the world. Another assumptions are not so right when it comes to our southern cowboy-like nature. If you travel outside the country, though, the assumptions that people will make are even more pronounced. When you show up in another nation, you say, I'm American, and automatically slot you into this category of loud and boisterous and prideful and, and arrogant because that's what all Americans are to... Uh, most people in the world. You know, place matters when you're introducing yourself. And it matters now, kids, and it really mattered back then in the ancient world. Uh, when you told someone where you were from, when you told someone where you were born, that place would ordinarily define who you were. Paul says, I'm from Tarsus and Cilicia, a city that's not obscure. And may I speak to these people? Now, who are the people, kids, that are before the Roman soldiers there in Paul. Uh, it's kind of hard to picture, isn't it? But you know, I think the Roman barracks is where they are. They're on steps. And then in front of them, perhaps as far as the eye can see, depending on how many were actually there, but no doubt a riotous mob is right there in front of them, many of whom have Paul's blood on their hands. 
spots of blood's pall on their cloaks. And he says, hey, can I talk to them? And with his permission, the Roman tribune's permission, you notice what happens in verse 40. Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. When there was a great hush, Luke says, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. A violent mob, loudly, just minutes before, in the process of killing Paul, can hear a pin drop there near the Roman barracks, because Paul's going to give his defense. He's going to say that Jesus saves persecutors. And Paul's initial defense is going to get interrupted along the way at the back part of our text, but it's really following into two simple parts. He's going to first argue about his commitment, or first certainly declare his commitment to Judaism. And then he's going to say, I was converted to Jesus Christ. So, he establishes, notice, his commitment to Judaism. Verse 3, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as are all of you this day. The students, it's, it's a power-packed sentence, isn't it? There, verse 3. It's meant to underscore Paul's credibility. So you can picture him almost as like a witness there in the trial, the courtroom of the temple before the Jews. He's locked into the witness stand, and it's what always happens with the witness. Uh, the, the intention is to recite your credentials in order to give credibility to what you're getting ready to say. He says, brothers, I'm a Jew. He would say to the Philippians, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was born in the city of Tarsus, that great city. I was raised in the greatest city, the city of Jerusalem. I sat probably for something like 15 years at the feet of the greatest rabbi of our generation, Gamaliel. I was known among all the Pharisees as the one with the greatest zeal for God's law. I was just like you in your love for the law. And not just that, he says. I was just like you in wanting to crush the church. Look at verse 4 to 5. I persecuted the way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness. Brothers, you have blood on your hands. I used to have it all over me, such as my zeal for the death of the Jews. He's establishing his commitment, former commitment, to Judaism. And if you notice that word in verse 1, the word there in English Bible translated defense, the original language just would have that as apology. But what Paul's doing here is nothing more than engaging in a form of biblical apologetics. He's showing that he's always standing at the ready to give it a defense for the faith that is in him. But what you want to see, and perhaps this might even be useful to some of you this week, as you maybe engage in biblical apologetics He's trying to bend their ear, establish some common ground with them. But bending the ear, of course, isn't the ultimate point because he's wanting to, to break through to their heart. And that breakthrough, of course, is going to come when he speaks about his conversion to Jesus Christ in verses 6 through 20. I walked into my office once and I found a book that a church member had left for me with a sticky note on it that said, you're going to love this book. And it was a book that came from a very obscure publisher, and small, tiny publisher, a book that was titled The Secret Thoughts 
of an unlikely convert. It was a book that was an autobiography uh, from a woman who formerly was a liberal, lesbian, feminist professor at Princeton University. That the Lord had amazingly converted to Jesus Christ. Like who would have thought she would become an eloquent defender of Christianity? And what you get now, don't you, in, in Paul's defense there before the Jews is the public thoughts of someone we might call the world's most unlikely convert. Saul of Tarsus. Uh, you, you know the story, Acts chapter 9. Hey, he's on the way to Damascus. He's got in his pocket papers from the authorities giving him license to persecute the Christians there in Damascus. And notice what we're told in verses 6 through 8. Stops him on that road trip that changed the world. As I was on my way, he says, and drew near to Damascus. About noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, like we said so many months ago, with one single sentence, the risen and exalted Jesus Christ shatters Paul's spiritual soul. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus that you and your Jewish brethren crucified, and you think dead. I am Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. But even it's important there, isn't it, to not only notice that it's a declaration of Christ's resurrection, but it also displays, doesn't it, that his identification with the church is that close that Paul's persecution of God's people strikes at the very heart of Jesus Christ. Now, don't you think that you know, many churches today might know something more in, in a godly, holy way of the Lord's love and peace, his, his hope and his steadfastness, if Christians would understand the kind of culture that, that can come from realizing sins against the church strike at the heart of Jesus Christ, uh, it might be true that you're in here today and the Lord means to shatter your soul spiritually. As he speaks over your heart, even now, I'm Jesus, against whom you constantly complain. I'm Jesus, against whom you are bitter. I'm Jesus against whom you're sinfully boasting. I'm Jesus, whom you say you will never trust again. But it's not just this word of warning, this word of announcement, this declaration of identification and resurrection that converts Paul. It's also a command that comes with it. You know, when Christ converts a soul, he doesn't just call them to himself. He commissions them accordingly. Look at verse 10. He says, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise, go into Damascus, and there... You will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Now, students, you need to grasp something quite important when it comes to your understanding of salvation. Because I do think for the Apostle Paul's subsequent teaching, uh, what he experienced there on the road to Damascus becomes this paradigm for how he thinks about not just salvation, but even the Christian life as an encounter with the risen Jesus Christ, union with the risen uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, what you see there is principally the sovereign grace of Christ in converting a sinner. Paul is on a road to persecute Jesus. Paul is on his way to crush the church. Paul is going down the road, and he wants nothing to do with Jesus. 
And what does the Lord say? Now's the time, Paul. It's been decreed from eternity past. Now's the time for you to come to me. What's Paul bringing to the Lord Jesus? Nothing other than his zeal for works righteousness. Other than his zeal to kill Christians. What's Paul bringing to Jesus? Nothing that would merit this word of grace. And maybe you're in the room today and you might think perhaps of yourself as an unlikely candidate for conversion to Jesus Christ. If other people in the room only knew what I did this week, if other people only knew what I've held in secret for so many years, they would know Jesus would never want me. But he says to Paul, doesn't he? You're mine. Now come and follow in my service. And you might be in the room today also. I know some of you are. You might have been for years, perhaps even decades, praying for friends or a family member to come to Jesus Christ, friends or family members that you would count as unlikely converts. Do you not think that there is a Savior who could get through to Paul with sovereign grace and power? Might not get through to your friend or family member that is walking on their own road to destruction. God saves persecutors in Jesus Christ. Uh, what you now need to see is that he also sends preachers. Uh, Jesus sends preachers. Because kids, you're going to notice in verse 11 and 12, he's making his defense. Everyone's in rapt attention there before him. And he says, now, oh, when I got to Damascus, I met this man named Ananias. If you know anything about Paul's retelling of his conversion story, he often talks about this man, Ananias. Why do you think it's so important for the Jews there in Jerusalem to hear about Ananias? Well, notice verse 12. This is why he was a devout man according to the law. Well, spoken of by all the Jews who live there, I have a witness that you can trust to what happened in my life. And he came to me, standing by me, and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight at that very hour. I received my sight and saw him. One of the wealthiest and most influential families in Chicago in the early 1900s was the Borden family. Not to be confused with the Borden family of milk fame. But one of their sons was named William. And because he came from this large, privileged, and influential family, when he graduated high school at the age of 16, his parents' graduation gift to him was an all-expense-paid trip around the world that he might be able to experience everything that the world has to offer. And little did they know that the Lord was going to use that world-wide trip to call him to be a missionary. And the Lord did. Nine years later, at the age of 25, William Borden dies in Egypt. He was on his way to China to preach the gospel. And when his friends and family members got his belongings back there in Chicago, they opened up his study Bible and found etched there. On the inside cover were two simple phrases, two words each. No reserves, no regrets. And... Of course, as Paul receives his commission, as the Lord sends him out as a preacher, I trust you know that there's no reserves or regrets in Paul's mind. Notice verse 14 through 16. The God of our fathers, Ananias, says to Paul, has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and, and wash away your sins. A calling on his name. 
Uh, one of the themes that's woven through this story, and it's easy to miss, is this theme of, of urgency. Because as Paul's recounting his zeal to persecute the Christians uh, there in verse 6, he, he talks about being on the road to Damascus at noon. Uh, Normal Jews at that time would never be out at noon. They would be under shade at noon. Such was the heat of the sun. Yet so urgent was Paul to crush the church. He's still out at noon racing towards Damascus. So urgent was Jesus Christ to interrupt Paul's life for salvation. He spoke forth from heaven with a blinding light. And what's the response that's now required of Paul in the commission of Christ? But urgency, rise, be baptized, wash away your sins, call upon his name. I wonder if urgency uh, for Jesus defines your life. You, you could be tarrying uh, at the call to, to rise, be baptized, wash away your sins, and uh, call upon his name. Some of you children may have been in this church for years and years, months and months, and, and heard a gospel that says, rise, be baptized, and call upon his name, that you might find your sins washed away, but you've never truly done that. Well, there's urgency in Paul's mind. He's rapidly getting to work. You'll notice in verse 17. And it's here that we find this kind of unique wrinkle in the story that we don't know yet. Look at what we're told in verse 17 through 20. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. You could translate that word trance something like ecstasy. It's kind of talking about the devotional quality of Paul's life and his dedication right from the get-go to commune with Jesus Christ. And, and there, Jesus appears to him in the temple and notice what he says, make haste and get out of Jerusalem and quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. It's much like what happens with the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, if you know. He's summoned there to the temple he encounters a word from the Lord that's a, a word that commissions him as a prophet sent to the nations. And there's a warning. Isaiah, they're not going to listen to you. Paul, get out of Jerusalem. They're not going to listen to you. Uh, but I'm sure as you can understand, Paul says, why? I am the perfect candidate to preach the gospel to the Jews. Notice verse 19 and 20. Lord themselves, they know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Who better to preach the gospel to the Jews, Lord, than me? But Jesus knows better, doesn't he? Our assumptions, our predictions, our thoughts of what is best, Actually, Jesus knows what is best. And so he says in the next verse, doesn't he? Go. I was in the church hallway on a Sunday morning, and I overheard a, a commotion of sorts. And a church member said, I'm not coming back after what I just saw. Now, this happened years ago in a church, not Redeemer, Presbyterian church. I was at the church, and we were going through some leadership transition at the time. And it was particularly transition with who was leading the music in the church. And we had a different people coming in each week to help us out with music. And for reasons I, I, I still don't know, we had one of the closest friends of the senior pastor of that church at the time come and lead the church in song that morning. And as he and the musicians were rehearsing, these long-tenured members began to stir up this commotion in the front of the room. 
And I remember stepping out and was there at the kind of front entranceway as a long-tenured member walked out saying over the shoulder, they are not welcome to worship my Jesus. What gets the crowd riled up all over again there at the Roman barracks? What is it that causes the Jews once again to unleash hell upon Paul or attempt to? They are not welcome to worship my God. You see verse 19, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And you'll see verse 22, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. They're shouting. They're throwing dust in the air. It's probably this ancient Jewish way of pronouncing judgment and abomination upon Paul. The Roman soldiers, they're ready to flog Paul. But you'll see later on in that paragraph uh, that he simply asserts his rights as a Roman citizen. So he escapes the flogging, but he doesn't escape the imprisonment. Go, Jesus said. I will send you far away to the nations, is how you could translate that. And the Jews say, they will not worship our God. And this leads to the first of three final meditations that I want to bring up here at the end. It's a theme, isn't it, in this passage about what happens when you bear witness for Jesus Christ. Paul is nothing more than a, than a witness. He will soon be a martyr uh, for Jesus Christ. And what I want you to see in the first of our final thoughts is that God's witnesses extend the light of Christ to the nations. God's witnesses are called to extend Christ's light to the nations. And throughout the Old Testament, you might know that the nation of Israel was called to be a light of witness of missions to the nations. So so why is Paul's defense here suddenly interrupted when he says, Jesus told me to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to the nations? Well, it's because at that time, Jews were okay with proselytizing. Students, that's just saying they were okay when Gentiles would become Jews. They were not okay with evangelizing, the Gentiles would become followers of Jesus and not Jews. Man-made tradition, sinful exclusion had caused God's people to miss out on their missionary purpose. Do you you ever wonder, I hope you do, and I hope you wonder today, how man-made traditions and sinful exclusion and many churches in our time can cause many parts of God's people to not follow through on the call to be obedient, to preach Christ to the nations. It's more important that our traditions are kept, that we exclude those who disagree with us, than we preach Jesus Christ to the nations. So God's witnesses are there to extend the light of Christ to the nations. Number two, uh, God's witnesses are to share the light of Christ with loving motivation. Now, here's why I say that. Again, you got to consider that scene there on that day so long ago. Paul, as he's facing the Jewish mob, surely bloodied and bruised all over from the beating he just took, speaking to a mob, bloody from the beating they just gave him probably even in some ways huffing and puffing from all the the energy and excitement they had in trying to put Paul to death there outside of the temple gates. Paul, who had heard from Jesus Christ in those very temple floors, 
They're not going to listen to you, Paul. And yet he turns around and says, can I talk to them again? And someone like me wants to ask, why? Why? They've already beaten you to the point of death multiple times in Acts. Jesus said they're not going to listen to you. But what does Paul say? To the Romans, it's my earnest prayer and desire to God that they would be saved. He says to the Corinthians, the love of Christ controls us. Be reconciled to God. Uh, We share the light of Jesus Christ with loving motivation. Do you ever perhaps consider that the small witness that we bear for Jesus Christ, the small attempts we have to share the light of Jesus Christ might just be nothing more than a small love for lost people in our hearts? Those that have constantly rejected the message, those that have constantly opposed the truth, why do you go again? Don't you want them? Don't you love a heart enough to preach again? To share again? Third thought. God's witnesses must look to the light of Jesus Christ for salvation. Not just is it something that we extend to the nations and share from loving motivation, but but no doubt, in principally speaking, in Paul's life, we must look to the light of Christ for salvation. Uh, Kids, you can glance through verse just 6 through 11. Why why is uh, Stone talking about the light of Christ? Well, you see in verse 6 through 11, just that simple section, how three times there's this motif of light that's breaking over Paul's horizon in his heart. A light that shatters his spiritual sensibilities. Light that converts him. Light that calls him. Light that commissions him. Why? As the Gospel of John says, in Jesus Christ was life. And that life was the light of the world. And the light has shone into the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. I grew up in a church tradition that loved old gospel songs. Uh, Songs that later on in life, a close friend of mine with whom we played music he would call these the gospel toe tappers. You know, you just can't help but not tap your toe once the song gets going. Uh, I was thinking about one of those earlier this week in light of this text. Many of you know it. The song that begins, I wandered so aimless. Life filled with sin. I wouldn't let my dear Savior in. Then Jesus saved me. Like a stranger in the night. Praise the Lord. I saw The light. It's the light of Jesus Christ that saves persecutors. It's the light of Jesus Christ that sends preachers. It's the light of Jesus Christ that saves all people. No matter where they are, where they're from, what they have done, what they're doing, or what they will do. So maybe like that old song would say, and you tap along with your toe. Now I'm so happy. No sorrow or sin in sight. Praise the Lord. He's the light. Let's pray together. Lord, we do pray that you would once again stir within our hearts gratitude and thanksgiving for your power unto salvation, your grace unto forgiveness, that marvelous light has called us out of darkness that we might proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. Help us to be faithful to that commission. Help us even this day to come to the sovereign grace that's found in your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.